This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the very niche and kind of geeky details of modern warfare with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're speaking to Aura Sakali. She's been doing a lot of research into the role of female fighters within irregular warfare, so guerrilla fighters, insurgents, that kind of thing. Along with two of her colleagues, she's writing a book about all of this. It's going to be out next year. So Aura is going to be talking about female fighters and their role in conflict all the way from Colombia to Kurdistan to Palestine. To support Popular Front, go to patreon.com slash popularfront and do check out youtube.com slash popularfront. Our first documentary is up there now. It's called Bogside Bonfire. It's about Derry, the IRA and nationalist flag burning. This episode is sponsored by thedefensepost.com. So you're writing this book at the moment, right, about uh, female militants within, you know, kind of insurgent groups and what have you. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? What, what's going on with it? Yeah, absolutely. So the book is a co-authored book. It's for a short book series that Georgetown University Press puts together. And I'm writing it with two of my buddies, Alexis Henshaw, who's at, uh, at Troy, and... Jessica Trisco Darden, who uh, is at American and also at, uh, at AEI, the American Enterprise Institute. So um, one of the things about being an area specialist, which I am, I spend most of my waking hours thinking about things that go boom in the Middle East, uh, is that I pretty much just think about the Middle East. And so it's been really fun about this project is uh, I've gotten to learn a whole lot that I did not know before about the FARC, which is what Alexis works on, and uh, about the civil war in Ukraine, which is uh, Jessica's area of expertise. So uh, it's been a lot of fun learning about the multiple dimensions of women's participation in armed conflict in some contexts that I don't usually focus on all that much. And one of the things that's really come out of the the process of writing this book together is the commonalities across these three really different contexts in terms of women's involvement in these armed groups. Yeah, well, maybe let's talk about that then, because we'll, we'll get into the, the Middle East, because obviously the YPJ, the uh, the female wing of the, the Kurdish militias in northern Syria, everybody knows about them, you know. But um, like you said then, you were surprised to, to find out about these other women in, in these kind of forces. Can you talk about them? The first place to start, I think, one of the things that's really come out of uh, the process of working on this book is that uh, I think one of the big blind spots in security studies and the study of armed co- conflict in general, and especially the study of asymmetric conflict, right? So civil wars, rebellions, terrorist campaigns, so on and so forth, is that uh, when we say combatant, what we usually mean is men. Uh, and when we're, when we're going to talk about women combatants, we say women. Right, we say female fighters uh, when we mean women, and when we say when, when we're talking about male fighters, we just say fighters. Right, so there's this understanding that female combatants are this like special, exceptional class uh, that uh, are really an exception to the rule. But one of the things that's that's come out of uh, the conversations that Jess and Alexis and I have had with each other over the, the course of writing this book, and a lot of the writing and, and, and research that we've done for it, is that really. Asymmetric warfare pretty much always involves women, um, just as it pretty much always involves men. And the variation really occurs in the nature of women's participation. So uh, there are a couple of 
big, broad trends that we can identify. And this isn't, this isn't just us. This is research that a lot of other people uh, have done on the nature of women's participation in asymmetric warfare. So one of the big commonalities is that the top-down side of the equation, right, like what the organizations themselves are like, what their internal policies are like, matters up to a point. So ideology is kind of important. Uh, statistically speaking, leftist groups are much more likely to recruit women. Islamist groups are somewhat less likely to recruit women. And nationalism, um, so those are like bog standard, like separatist uh, nationalist groups that are less ideologically oriented, that doesn't seem to have a super strong effect on, on whether or not they're, uh, they're going to recruit women. So that's one common theme. Another common theme, uh, and this is why I think uh, the treating female combatants as this like weird occasional thing that only happens sometimes, that's an exception, that's not part of the, the mainline story of warfare, is kind of problematic, is that it turns out that um, female fighters join militant groups for the same reasons that male fighters do. And this like maybe shouldn't be so surprising to us, right? Uh, people, including men, including women, tend to pick up guns for a wide range of reasons. Some of those reasons are about political grievance. So people who have experience of state repression, people who have experienced state violence, people who've seen bad things happen to their friends, family at the hands of the state are more likely uh, to develop, uh, I don't know, um, a sense that they would like to do something about that, right? So that, that's, one, uh, that's one incentive that seems to lead women into, into joining armed groups. Um, some of this is abstract, some of it is personal, right? So people can also become uh, motivated to join an, an armed group without having experienced personal uh, without having like personal first-person experience of, uh, of, of state repression, it can, for some people, be you know, purely ideological. For other people, it's about something that actually happened to them in their lives. Um, but one thing that also seems to be the case across a number of different armed groups is that women will sometimes have this added set of motivations, which are about their own personal lives. So um, one of the things that Alexis has found is that women who joined the FARC were sometimes motivated to do so, at least in part, because they were trying to escape violence at home. The FARC being the uh, Colombian rebels, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. So uh, in, in Colombia, some of the women who, who are choosing to join the FARC or the ELN, which is a, a smaller Colombian rebel group that uh, sort of runs parallel to the FARC, um, they were sometimes motivated to do so because they were trying to escape violence at home, maybe from like an abusive partner or, uh, or from, from parents. Um, another set of motivations seemed to relate to uh, trying to escape from early marriage. So one of the things that some uh, Kurdish, Kurdish fighters will say uh, when, when interviewed, although my interview subjects did not list this as a, as a motivation, but it's certainly, it's, it's certainly there in, in other testimonies, uh, is that young women will sort of see themselves as having two possible choices. They could get married in like their mid to late teens, um, or they could go off and join the PKK. Uh, like this is something that, that, that seems to happen in rural areas of Turkey. Um, so 
there can also be these really very personal motivations for women who are trying to escape uh, a difficult situation. Um, will look at joining an armed, an armed group as a way of doing that. And sometimes it can also be just like a broader interest in more personal autonomy, right? This is, and this is something that I heard from women that I talked to who'd been involved with, uh, with the PKK in Turkey, which is that um, they didn't just, and you see this in, in uh, testimonies by current and former fighters all the time, you also hear this from women who fight with YPJ, that um, they're not just interested in fighting the Turkish state, they're not just interested in fighting against ISIS, they also see themselves as fighting against misogyny. They're interested in liberating themselves as Kurds, but they're also interested in liberating themselves as women. So one theme that comes out of that is this sense of there being kind of a double struggle. So women are not only uh, facing the same state repression that their male comrades are facing, they also find themselves pushing for more autonomy, pushing for more recognition of their talents, pushing for uh, a more egalita egalitarian culture within their own organizations. Yeah, I um, I was in Diyarbakir in 2015 in Sur, the neighborhood where all the fighting was happening between the PKK youth and the, the Turkish military. And I met a female commander there, um, a PKK female commander. And she, well, she was running, she was like YDGK, they were calling it. Yeah. It was like, you know, the female wing of the PKK youth. Anyway, and yeah, and she said exactly that, you know, she, she was very talkative and she was very like wanting to tell you all, all of what she's fighting for. And she was saying, yes, we're fighting, you know, against the Turkish state oppression. We're fighting for our own land, but also I'm fighting for every woman on earth. You know, like it was a very yeah. deep ideological thing she had, you know, it was very interesting. Yeah, it is really interesting. Um, and I think that's much more explicit in the, the PKK and the YPJ and these sort of like out the, all of the organizations within this like broader constellation of, of interconnected organizations um, whose connections are stronger at some points, weaker at others, right? So that's maybe more common as a narrative within those organizations than it is in other organizations. But I, but I do think there's something to this idea that, that women in these armed groups, even in, in groups that are ideologically committed at least in theory to egalitarianism that there's there's probably some work that they find themselves doing within the organizations to try and create more uh equality on the ground as it were well that's what i really liked about um genealogy you know the um the female ideology that the, the pkk follow and the ypg and the ypj because it wasn't like you know it wasn't like this kind of western thing of like yeah fuck men it was like no we need each other and without us here you can't be whole you know and you can't learn off of each other and i thought that was a really nice way of doing it and especially you know in terms of the battlefield yeah actually proved to be very effective you know because some of the female fighters were a lot better at certain types of combat than the male fighters you know for example snipers as a committed feminist i'm gonna i'm gonna say that uh i, I see feminism as being uh, about a lot of other ideas but um no no absolutely but i mean it's become like a trend it's like a thing that people just say and it's like no there's a lot more to it you know what i mean yeah there's certainly um I think part of the reason why genealogy as, or at least, so one, one thing that I heard from uh, some Kurdish women activists that I talked to in, uh, in Turkey a couple of years ago, who, who are not part of the armed wing of any party, who are, they're like civilian activists, but who, you know, who are deeply engaged with this like broader liberationist political project. Uh, 
when I talk to them about, okay, so, you know, how do you see, I think I used the word feminism, like, through an interpreter when I was, when I was talking to them about this, and um, they were really quick to say, like, well, actually, you know, we feel as if Western feminism um, doesn't really speak to us, in part because it's sort of a colonial feminism, that it's feminism for white people, um, that it misses a lot of these other power dynamics, and that genealogy uh, is something that reflects the reality is that we live with and that it's um, it's an ideology that works really well for the Kurdish context. And I thought that was really, really interesting. A friend of mine, she's one of the um, kind of genealogy um, educators in Europe, and she says they come up against a lot of trouble with, you know, other feminist groups um, and, you know, trans groups and other LGBT groups because of, you know, their way of doing things is very different to the Western kind of way of doing things. I mean, there's a bit of a conflict there, I think, in some ways. I think the, the questions that they start with are um, a little bit different because I think the Kurdish experience has been so shaped by the, like, the particular struggles against the Turkish state. So I, th- I think it's understandable that the kind of the internal conversations that they're having are about the, the issues that are, um, that feel most powerful for, uh, for Kurdish women. But I will say, you know, I saw um, Ilham Ahmed, who is, um, or, or was, I think there's been an election since then, but one of the, one of the co-leaders of um, one of the party, the Kurdish party organs within um, the, the SDF, she came to speak in Providence, Rhode Island, which is where I live, uh, about a year and a half ago, and I, I went to see her, and it was a really, really interesting talk. And one of that words, you know, the audience were all asking questions and somebody asked like, Hey, how would you, how would you feel if a trans woman wanted to, to join the YPJ and fight as a woman and without batting an eyelash, um, I think the whole project that they're doing there is incredible, especially when you consider the space where it has happened, because, you know, no matter how kind of accepting people want to be, you know, the Middle East has famously not been a place where women, you know, are allowed this kind of autonomy. So I think what they're doing is very interesting, especially in terms of, like you said, mixing up with the kind of Western stuff as well. Yeah, I mean, so I, I will I will tell you um, my own personal, like, radioactive research spider story, which is how I, how I got interested in uh, doing all this stuff in the first place. Cause my, my previous research had been almost entirely on uh, foreign and domestic policy making among the various Palestinian armed factions. So the leftist nationalist Islamist, as well as this whole range of different Lebanese uh, parties. And um, when I was doing my dissertation research and on sort of subsequent research trips, to the Middle East, I spent a lot of time like sitting in political party offices and um, various faction offices in you know, refugee camps in Lebanon and Syria and you know all over the place. And um, almost invariably, there were some exceptions, but almost every single time, it was me and a bunch of guys. Um, and occasionally, there would be you know like somebody's aunt who was making the tea, and. And that was about it. And, and look, they were, you know, across the board, incredibly friendly, incredibly hospitable. You know, they would like send somebody out to get me cookies. Right. So, you know, I don't I don't want to contribute to this trope that, you know, oh, it must be so hard to be um, a woman doing research in the Middle East. I actually think it's it's probably a lot easier in many ways for women 
for female researchers to, to do this kind of work than it is for men. But um, it, you know, it, it was definitely an ongoing characteristic of my research life, shall we say. Um, and then a couple years ago, I, uh, because, you know, academics are really bad at going on vacation, I was in Turkey um, for a conference and decided I was going to go to Diyarbakir for the weekend just for fun because I wanted to see it. thought, you know, this, this would be sort of a nice, a nice break. It was during the peace process and I'd heard really good things about it. Um, and I, I flew out there from Istanbul and one of our graduate students at my university had put me in touch with some of his friends. And the next thing I knew, um, they'd like taken me along with them. They were journalists and, and one of them had taken me along with her to this PKK march that she was covering. Um, which, you know, you're an academic. This is great if you like randomly luck into a, to a protest. And one of the things that really struck me was there were women leading the march. There were um, women on the like political party bus at the front of the march. Um, there were women giving the speeches. And then later on, you know, I, somebody had arranged like some meetings with me for, for some of the civilian politicians in town. And um, again, there were, you know, like women running around the offices with like clipboards and cell phones glued to their faces. And it was so different from a lot of what I had seen, even from like far left political parties in other parts of the region, um, which have politically have this like very egalitarian political project. But in practice, like there just isn't in terms of what the daily work within the faction looks like just aren't they just don't look that way um and i found this really really fascinating and i also thought like huh this might this might be kind of a, a nice break from sitting with all these guys in offices right who who again you know i don't i don't want to complain about any of the the folks that i who who were kind enough to sit down with me for uh for interviews they were they were by and large incredibly incredibly kind incredibly accommodating um, but it, it, it was such a striking contrast to see what um, sort of like the internal dynamics of these Kurdish political parties and of the, the Kurdish national movement more generally, at least in the, the Turkish context, looked like um, that I found myself really fascinated as to like, how did this happen? How did, how did this particular um, political movement end up looking like this? when other organizations elsewhere in the regions just just don't yeah it's very interesting for all their faults the pkk's female you know inclusion and you know empowerment is actually very real you know there are you sometimes you see like peshmerga in iraq and they'll have like females dressed in uniforms but they don't let them fight they don't let them do anything they just kind of say come for a photo and that's it but with the pkk you know hate them or love them or whatever that is actually very real that's a very real part of it one of the things that i find consistently frustrating about coverage of uh, the Middle East in general, like not, not just the Kurdish parts of the Middle East, is the way that um, ethnic groups or national groups, I mean, ethnic is sort of a, a tricky word to use accurately in the Middle East, but like entire communal groups of hundreds of thousands or like millions of people will be conflated and treated as if they are all politically identical to each other. Right, so you know the Palestinians want this, or the Lebanese, you know, are are you know such and such way, and and that's just not like a terribly useful way to talk about politics, and this happens all the time with the Kurds, and I think um, 
it's understandable, right, that this happens in the in the media, but it's also really not useful. Like treating 30 million people as if they are all politically interchangeable with one another um, isn't terribly accurate, and it's also not terribly informative. Um, and treating all of the Kurdish political organizations as if they're as if they have the same objectives, but also the same like internal organizational characteristics is it, it's just not helpful. Um, but I also understand, right, if you're a producer for uh, a TV show and you've heard, like, hey, there's all of this uh, coverage of these female fighters, let's go interview a couple of them. Okay, we could go to northern Syria, um, which has ISIS running all over the place, or uh, we could go to Diyarbakir, or, you know, I guess Kandil, like, if you want to go interview actual fighters, which is a war zone or we could just go to Erbil. Like, <laughs> you know, like, I understand why people are like, okay, we'll go to Erbil. Like, that, that seems like a nice, I think Erbil sounds fantastic, right? But, but this uh, is the problem with news, right? Like, modern news is just terrible in that sense. It doesn't actually go into the detail. It's, it's so true, you know, what you said, like, oh, the Kurds. Like, which Kurds? Like, northern, yeah. north, you know what you mean? Like, Iran? Or do you mean Turkey? Or do you mean Iraq? Or, you know what I mean? It's, it's, yeah, which, it's a which problem. You said your colleague was working on something to do with the female fighters in Ukraine. Now, I've done a lot of work in Ukraine and I've, I've seen females training and stuff like that. And they do actually, even the fascist groups, they actually hold quite a role, you know. Um, but I've never seen them fighting. Have, have, have you experienced um, any of that with your research in Ukraine? Um, so we are now veering well outside my area of expertise. So um, I, I'm going to like preface anything I might say. Uh, by saying I might be wrong about this, um, right? Because well, this is this is really um, this is Jess's area of expertise much more than it is mine. Um, so, but but one of the broad dynamics that she found was that for women who are involved on the sort of the pro-Ukrainian government side, many of them seem to be motivated really heavily by. Um, like sort of genuine nationalist commitment, which which sort of makes sense, right? Because they have to go to the war. They have to make the choice to actually get out there and go to the war. Whereas uh, for women who were on the rebel side, the war came to them. And so, uh, and for them, like they are much more specifically driven to actually protect their homes. Um, and so I think that probably shapes some of the differences in participation. Um, but some of it also is, you know, there's some evidence, and I, I don't know how widespread this is, um, but that at least some of women's participation, is, you know, on, on both sides, is driven by a shortage of soldiers. Um, but but where that gets tricky is that there's also all of this propaganda uh, using female soldiers to attempt to shame men into joining up. Right, so propaganda saying, you know, boy, look, look at all these female soldiers. Isn't it a shame that there aren't any men to go fight? And, you know, we have to have these, you know, these poor women, you know, who are all fighting, doing a man's job. And I, I think there's, there's certainly some of that. And that's also not uncommon, right? I mean, that's, um, that's also a feature of some of the propaganda videos from a bunch of the different factions in Syria. Um, you know, there's a couple of FSA, FSA factions that have put out propaganda videos. Um, I saw one when I was doing research for another project uh, a couple of months ago where, the, you know, the camera is like standing on a street and this woman like goes booking past holding, I want to say like a shoulder 
mounted RPG. It's just like this like massive gun. And then she turns and stops and looks at the camera and says, um, you know, lets off this like screed about like the terrible repression from the government and then says, you know, uh, you know, shame on the men of Syria that like a woman has to be out here fighting and then goes like running off down the street. Really not a good message. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's very, it's very direct. Um, so I think there's, I think there's an element of that. And that's, that's, you know, something that you see in a lot of, in a lot of places. Although again, like that's not, that's definitely not what's happening um, with the PKK or with the YPJ. And I think that's, that's also not what's happening uh, with the, the FARC or the Yale and Columbia. Um, but it is something that you see in other environments. And what about the Palestinian factions? Because I know like in the 80s, um, the PFLP was around. Females definitely, you know, played a large role and a real role as well. Um, you know, Leila Khalid and people like that. But nowadays, you don't really see it, or at least I don't see it, you know, in, in what I'm looking at. Are they still around, like female Palestinian fighters? Um, I mean, so the nature of, the short answer is the nature of uh, armed resistance in the Palestinian movements has changed a lot. Uh, over the years, but just because like the military, the the forms of engagement have changed a lot, so it's it's really different. Fighting was basically a land war in Lebanon, um, and before that in Jordan uh, in in 1970, you know, versus fighting what has been an attrition campaign characterized mostly by um, terrorist tactics that you know. Sometimes, well, when it when it kills civilians, it's terrorism, and when it when it kills military personnel, it's guerrilla warfare. Um, but they don't rely as heavily on like huge numbers of fighters, partly because I think a lot of the Palestinian factions don't have huge numbers of of fighters, at least not you know in numbers that could uh, that could pose like a real military challenge to the IDF. Um, there have always been women involved certainly, um, with the, the various Palestinian armed groups. But, but again, not in the way that they were in the PKK, right? I mean, there are estimates, and I think these may be inflated, it's, it's really hard to know, but there are estimates that, you know, there are something, you know, as, as many as 40% of the, the PKK's armed force are women. Um, and there's a big asterisk there, right? So there's some research that's been done recently that suggests that the numbers may be a little bit lower, but like, but still, that's, you know... Even the lowest estimates put it at like 16 to 18%, which is still north of the number of women in the U.S. military. It's like 16.2. I, I might have that number wrong. But like even the low estimates of, of, of women in you know, fighting with the, the PKK put those, put those numbers way up there. And that was never the case for even the leftist factions, even like the DFLP um, or the, which is the Democratic Front for the Liberation of Palestine, the PFLP, like the Popular Front uh, for the Liberation of Palestine, like they they just never had those sorts of numbers um, of women fighting with them. They did have women involved in what could be termed like irregular operations. So Leila Khalid is a really good example of that. Um, and Hamas, of course, has recruited women to use uh, as suicide bombers. But, uh, which, oh, that's something the PKK did that as well. Something, I think. Yeah, I was about to say, you know, famously, that was their thing for a while in the 90s. Yeah, I think it, there, was, there was one spate where there was, in the 90s, I think there were like this, there were like 15 suicide attacks, 11 of which were carried out by women. I mean, there, there are a lot of organizations that do this. And it's not, it's not hard to see why, operationally, right? For a suicide bomber to be effective, they need to be able to get close to the target. And 
women are often viewed, rightly or wrongly, uh, with with less as it well in this case wrongly, uh, with less suspicion than men might be. Um, but I think that in the Middle East, in general, uh, the the Kurdish forces really do stand out for the number of women that they use. Because um, even even when uh, the Palestinian forces were engaged in sort of like broad guerrilla warfare with you know, like large numbers of of troops, they weren't recruiting women in the same numbers. Well, I wanted to know what role the female fighters play um, within FARC and the other Colombian rebels, because that's something I know absolutely nothing about. Yeah, it's, it's something that I knew very little about before I started uh, working on this book, so uh, thanks, Alexis. I uh, <laughs> learned, learned a ton from, uh, from, from my friend and colleague. Um, so as it turns out, uh, so when I first started working on, on this question of like why, you know, how did, how did the PKK end up recruiting so many women? Um, one of the things that I kept hearing from people was you need to go out and learn something about the FARC. Because the FARC, in fact, in some ways looks pretty similar to the PKK. They're, the estimates are something like 30 to 40 percent um, of, the, of the fighters in the FARC are women, and it's about 25 percent in the ELN. Um, and there's some other parallels too, right? They're both Marxist organizations. They both embrace um, this range of broadly egalitarian and, and liberationist ideas, particularly rights for indigenous people. Um, but more recently, they've also embraced uh, LGBT rights, so on and so forth, right? So there's there's some interesting parallels there with the Kurdish left organizations and with militant left groups around the world um, more broadly. But there's another interesting parallel, which uh, I find really fascinating with the with the PKK, which is uh, this kind of change from within story. Um, so in Kurdistan, in Turkish Kurdistan, in the 1980s and 1990s, there's this like massive crackdown by the Turkish state. And, all, and I realize I'm talking about the FARC by talking about the Kurds, but there is a point to all of this, I promise. Um, so there's this massive crackdown on, uh, on the Kurdish population by, by the Turkish military and, and security forces. And this produces uh, a certain amount of, um, well, it produces a certain amount of, of civilian suffering, but it also uh, politicizes a lot of people. So there's you know, this huge dragnet where lots and lots of Kurdish men and some Kurdish women are arrested. And so women who'd never previously been particularly politicized end up going to the prisons to protest. And they find themselves uh, needing to advocate for their fathers, their sons, their brothers, their husbands. Um, who have, have been arrested. And this politicizes a lot of women who had never really been all that politicized before. They end up joining the Kurdish national movement. And then some of them end up picking up guns and actually joining the PKK. And then once they're within the organization, they create, create this like really powerful internal dynamic uh, of pushing for greater egalitarianism and, and pushing for an increase in the rights of women. This is almost exactly what happens within the FARC, right? Which is kind of, it's a really interesting parallel. Um, there are votes held within the FARC to allow women in combat roles. There's, it actually happens across two votes in 1978 and then in 1982. Um, and women increasingly begin, uh, become politicized as a result of their grievances against the Colombian state. And then they, you know, as they join the movement, once they're actually within the FARC, they start pushing for greater rights for women within the organization. 
and so there's this uh, there's this sort of interesting again dynamic of change from within by women who've actually become part of the organization. What's different with uh, the Colombian case is this is so widespread uh, and such a powerful dynamic that there's actually competition between the FARC and the ELN for who can offer um, more opportunities for women because they're both competing with one another to recruit female soldiers. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting, um, which I think, I mean, I think some of that is it's just, it's a side effect of having two um, fairly well established, I mean, the FARC's a lot bigger than the ELN, but, but it's, you know, a consequence of having two established uh, sizable armed groups so that would-be recruits actually have something of a choice. Um, but again, like there's, there's like an entire alphabet soup of Palestinian armed groups, and we don't see like a similar bidding war uh, for potential female recruits there. And these are real fighters, right? This isn't just oh, yeah. propaganda. This is the women can fight, and they will get their rights, and they oh, will yeah. be treated equally. Yeah. Yes. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, they, there's actually some evidence that um, there are like lower rates of uh, of attrition by female fighters than uh, than male fighters. Like women are more likely to stick with the organization. Really? Um, yeah. Why do you think that is? I don't know. Uh, it would it would be pure speculation uh, if I were to try and guess. But uh, some of it may be that you know if you join an armed group to get away from um, a rough family situation, then maybe you have more of an incentive to stick with it, no matter how rough things get. Um, but I, I don't have a really good answer to that. We should talk about this. Yeah, I, I, for want of a better word, this kind of fetishization of yeah. female fighters in the West. Yeah, and it's and it's a way of diminishing um, their military accomplishments, right? It's a way of reducing somebody who's a really capable soldier um, to a, a pinup or to um, like a mascot, which is which is really not okay. It's not okay when it happens to women in the armed forces in this country. Sorry. Well, I'm currently in Germany and I'm a U.S. citizen and you're a Brit. So let's say it's not okay if it happens to uh, women of the armed forces in any of those three countries. Uh, and it's not okay when it happens to women who are fighting with the YPJ. I get the thing of, oh, you know, female fighters. That's interesting because it is. And like you said, throughout all these conflicts, female fighters have actually been a constant. We just didn't realize. However, it is fair to say mostly men join up. It doesn't mean the women aren't there, but mostly men join up. Yeah. But then it, it just gets twisted into this thing of, I don't know, just they're women. It's like, yeah, but they're fighting ISIS. Yeah, they're, they're soldiers. Um, I read a really interesting interview, uh, or I guess watched a really interesting interview. Um, on the, So the YPG and the YPJ, I'm sure you've seen this, they both have uh, official press, like media office YouTube channels, and they, um, they put up all kinds of, of really interesting stuff. And... Uh, I was reading an interview with a commander who led one of the main units that was responsible for the defense of Kobane. And, uh, and one of the things she said was, you know, there's this myth that ISIS are afraid to fight women because they think they won't go to heaven. Yeah, there's bullshit. And I can tell you that that's not true because they came after us and they, you know, they tried to kill my entire unit and we stuck it out and we defended our city. So yeah, so I think there, this idea that... Um, yeah, that there's there's soldiers and then there's female soldiers. I I think that's really problematic. 
Um, and, and partly because like it means we're missing something really important about warfare. If we want to understand the nature of asymmetric conflict, then we have to actually understand the nature of asymmetric conflict, and that means looking at everybody who's involved with it. Um, but it's also, you know, it diminishes um, the accomplishments, or you know, if if atrocities are being committed, it, it diminishes the the culpability uh, of the women who are involved. You'll love this. I, it suddenly just popped in, into my head. I was in. Um... I think Jizra or Salopia, one of the two cities in southeast Turkey when the, the conflict was going on. And there was a group of um, YDGH, so like young PKK youth, most of them lads, and they had a female commander. And me, you know, with a Western head on, I was like, oh, that's cool. And I said to the kid, I said, oh, how do you feel about the fact, you know, your, uh, your commander's a female? Because I thought, you never know, they might be like, oh, I don't like this. And the kid was just looked at me, uh, you know, my friend was translating, but he just went, what? It's normal. And these were young guys, young ghetto guys, you know, and it was normal for them. So one thing that I think would be really interesting as a research project, and I don't, I don't know if I will ever, ever have a chance to do this, but all right, um, there's any like aspiring PhD students uh, listening to this, here you go. Here's your dissertation topic. Um, I would love somebody to do a really careful comparative study of the military performance and internal organization and internal dynamics of the mixed units that fight with the PKK and the all-women's units and the all-men's units in the Syrian Kurdish forces, that is, the the YPG and YPJ. Because I think there's a really interesting um, opportunity there because the, you know the, doctrinally they're they're pretty similar. They've got very similar ideological roots, and many of the there's at least some evidence, right? Like I've I've read uh, testimonies about this, and I've seen interviews suggesting that some of the early officer corps of the YPJ were women who'd had you know years of experience fighting with the PKK, but who had Syrian family who then came back to Syria to help start up the YPJ when the, when ISIS started getting a little bit too close. Uh, to the Kurdish areas in in, to the, in uh, 2013. Um, so, like, there's a lot of similarity between the two organizations, but they're also organized in somewhat different ways. And I I would love uh, to see somebody do some really like thoughtful comparison um, of the you know what some of the differences are between mixed units um, and segregated units because one of the one of the big objections made by people who don't think that combat positions should be open to women um, is that, oh no, like mixed units are, there's no way that could possibly work. Uh, and I think the performance of the PKK suggests, uh, suggests otherwise. Um, like whatever whatever uh, issues the PKK has had, I don't think the gender composition of their military units is responsible for those issues. But I, I think there could be, uh, yeah, there's, there's probably a really interesting opportunity to, to do some really interesting research there. Absolutely. Um, Aura, where and when can people get hold of your book and where can people get hold of you and follow your work? Uh, I am on Twitter, uh, Aura Sekely. Uh, my last name is unpronounceable in Hungarian. It is spelled S-Z-E-K-E-L-Y. Um, people can get a hold of the book in early 2019, uh, which is when it's going to be out with Georgetown University Press. It'll be up on their website. There is an... Uh, I believe um, an ebook version of uh, the individual chapters as well as the book as a whole. And there's also going to be a paperback version. Okay, brilliant. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to that. Um, thank you so much for having me on. This has been a lot of fun. 
So that was Aura Sakali talking about female militants within uh, various irregular conflicts. Uh, please do go to youtube.com slash popular front, subscribe and watch our first documentary. It's already out. It's called Bogside Bonfire. Uh, myself and a young photojournalist from Belfast, a good lad called Connell Kearney, friend of mine, we went to Derry. We went to the Bogside where the Bloody Sunday Massacre happened and basically hung out for a couple days with... A group of young lads there calling themselves the Bogside Republican Youth. Um, the documentary covers the IRA, the flag burning, the bonfires and the huge levels of poverty in the Bogside in Derry. So yeah, if that sounds like something you've been to, please do watch it, share it, all of that. Um, we made the doc with absolutely no money, no budget and we only got about two days to shoot. So overall, I think it's alright, it's not too bad. It's had a good reception so far anyway. This episode was sponsored by thedefensepost.com, defense with an S. And if you'd like to support Popular Front and help us carry on making documentaries like Bogside Bonfire and keep the podcast going, go to patreon.com slash popular front. You get all sorts of extras there like bonus episodes, narrated articles, all sorts of stuff. Thank you very much to the highest tier Patreons. They are Teddy, Emily Molly, Aliame Leroy, Daniel Shearer, Joanne Stocker, Margaret Bowling, Kjetil, Zachary Hinch, Stephen Henderson, LH, Joel Tambusi, Cole Gannon, Ryan Sandercock, Cedar Fenn, and the What Bitcoin Did podcast. And a little bit of popular front news, some other stuff we've got coming up. Me and a graphic designer are currently working on making a coffee table book about irregular forces all over the world. It will be very visual, there will be a lot of graphics, a lot of photos, and basically explanations of various different irregular groups, so guerrilla forces here, there and everywhere. Pictures of their patches, explaining what they were fighting for, what kind of equipment they had. Um, really looking forward to it, I think it'll be really fun. Um, so when that gets going I will inform you all and hopefully you want to buy it at some point for all things Popular Front go to popularfront.co or follow me on Twitter that's at Jake underscore Hanrahan H-A-N-R-A-H-A-N is how you spell my surname or follow the Popular Front Twitter if you can't be bothered with me that is at popularfrontco like the site also on Instagram we are popular.front and like I said before the YouTube youtube.com slash popularfront please do subscribe hit that bell thing because YouTube is an absolutely atrocious platform it never works properly music in this episode the intro is by an artist called Home and the outro is by son of old my mate Sam soundcloud.com slash son dash of dash old